Let's pray. Father, we know we're never alone because you've promised uh, to be with us and to be our God, and we thank you, Lord, for that. And uh, we realize uh, there's no perfection in this life, Lord, and help us uh, renew our hope uh, based on your promises and on your resurrection. Lord, make us think of this often. Lord, um, we thank you for your words in, in John 11. You're the resurrection and the life. And in John 5, that, that he who believes in you shall never die and, and has passed from death into life and that you promised to raise, raise us up on the last day. Lord, help us uh, understand this account tonight. We, we see your graciousness interacting with your disciples, and uh, we thank you that you're gracious and patient for us. We do pray that you would <clears throat> cause us to shed unbelief uh, and forgive us uh, when that works, works in us. You're worthy of all our trust. Lord, we do continue to pray for Bill Carson, Lord, that, that you would enable him to come home again and, and strengthen his legs, Lord, uh, that, that he can be more independent in that sense. Help us, Lord, with the gospel uh, to not be ashamed of you and it, and to proclaim it with both truth and compassion in, in our generation. And uh, we are blessed uh, to be your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going in chronological order through all the Gospels, so uh, we're at the Resurrection Day, and all the things that unfolded on Sunday, and where we are now <clears throat> is, I won't review all the chronology on the chart again, we've been through that enough, but we're going back over some of the key interactions that Jesus had with various individuals on that first day of the resurrection. And tonight we're going to do Jesus' interaction with Mary Magdalene, and then Jesus' interaction with Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus. And then we'll, if we have enough time that evening, they all get together and they start comparing notes that evening. And while they're there comparing notes and beginning to believe in the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appears to them late Sunday evening, and we might get that far, or we might not, we'll see. So <clears throat> we're over on page 240, the lower right is, is where we are, Jesus' interaction with, uh, with Mary Magdalene. So, John 20, verse 11. Uh, this is after Mary returned back to the tomb. You might remember that she fled, fled from the tomb, saying they've stolen the body. She didn't look into it. She notified Peter and John. Peter and John came running back out to the tomb. Mary came, followed behind them, probably walking quite slowly, and then she ends up at the tomb a second, a second time here. So, and what happens then is right here. Um, <clears throat> uh, but Mary, uh, let's back up a little bit. 
Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. This is referring to Peter and John when they first showed up there in response to Mary's message. They returned home, but Mary stood outside weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and stooped down and looked into the tomb. So, whatever John's faith was, um, verse 8, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. We studied that last week. Like, what did that mean? It didn't mean he believed fully in the resurrection, because the next verse says, For as... For, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So we discussed that last week. Then the disciples returned home, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. So whatever, whatever John's faith was at that moment, if he shared it with Mary, and, and we don't know whether their paths crossed at that point or not. It's hard to tell from reading this account. You see, the disciples went away again to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. I mean, it's almost as if the, they, the three of them were together, and they left, and Mary stayed there and continued to weep. But that might be unlikely. I'm, I'm just not sure whether their paths crossed or not uh, at that moment. Um, <clears throat> so she is standing there weeping, and as she wept, she looked. She stooped down and looked into the tomb. This is this must be the first time she looked into the tomb uh, on on that Sunday on that Sunday morning. So, and the two angels appear to her. We saw the two angels in Luke, and they appear to Mary this time. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus was, was laying. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So let's, let's take a look at that. So she, they, they asked her that question. Their question was not to gather information, but it was a, probably a mild, a mild rebuke. Why are you weeping? She said, she too did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. She didn't know that scripture. And so not being informed by the Old Testament, she comes to the wrong explanation of what she's seeing. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Okay. So by not knowing the scripture, like verse uh, 9 says, she looks at this situation, she comes to the wrong conclusion. Had she known the scripture, and had she remembered the things Jesus had said, ah, the tomb's empty. Well, Jesus said he would rise again in three days, didn't he? So she's forgotten the things that Jesus said, and she doesn't know the scripture of the Old Testament, so she misinterprets the empty tomb. 
either either it was stolen, or now she's going to think the gar the gardener took it, took the t took the body. Then they said to her, uh, <clears throat> "All right, on okay." So then they said, there, why are you weeping? Okay, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they laid them. Now when she now when she had said this, she turned she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, this is the same experience that the guys on the road to Emmaus are gonna have. So she turned, I guess she turned from the angels, and now she actually is seeing Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And uh, maybe there's a mild rebuke in that, in that question. And Jesus, uh, she's supposing him to be the gardener. Now, that's, that's logical. That's not an illogical thing, right? The tomb is in a garden, and gardens usually have gardeners, and maybe the gardener had instructions to, uh, you know, the, the, the body had to be moved to another tomb. So now that's what she's thinking. This man is the gardener, and so uh, she asked him, uh, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's prepared to provide another burial site for Jesus at this point. She just wants to find the body, and she's prepared to provide another burial site. Now it's almost a bit humorous if you think about this from Jesus's perspective as he's standing there and listening to her. Uh, she wants his body to bury it. <laughs> it's what she wants to do. She wants to find his body so she can put it in another tomb and respect it. So I don't know, it seems a little funny to me if you were on the other end of this conversation. Uh, so, but at the same time, her deep affection and respect and devotion to Jesus is really evident, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's very strong. She greatly respects him. She's devoted to him. She wants to honor him by honoring his body. That, you know, that, that's, coming, that's coming across loud and clear also. So Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. That's the Aramaic, or he, Aramaic word for, for teacher, which is to say teacher. So when Jesus addresses her by her name, likely with a slightly raised voice. She recognizes his voice. She turned and then said to him, Rabboni, uh, that she turned to speak to him seems to indicate that maybe the earlier part of the conversation, she wasn't looking at him. You know, she may have just been looking down or something. There's a turn here and then, and then after he says Mary to her, um, she must recognize his voice, and then she turns at that point. Um, so that might explain why she didn't recognize him earlier. We, did, you know, we don't know. But now, suddenly, she realizes at this moment, Jesus is alive. 
And that's why the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And so Jesus speaks to her in in verses 17 and following. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand. Uh, Complicating matters is the Greek verb translated do not cling can legitimately be translated do not touch. You can go either way with that. I lean to the do not cling because of what might be going on here. Um, So let's work through this a little bit. Now, um, and what is she doing? She is bowed down, likely like the women we saw in Matthew 28, 9 through 10. When they encountered Jesus as they were on the way back to the city, they bowed down to him and it says they, they, they held his feet. So likely that's probably what Mary is doing here. She's bowed down to him and she's clinging either to his feet or his shins or his legs is, is probably the scene. And, and so I, I think it is clean, clinging, not just touching. And <clears throat> so uh, Jesus tells her, do not cling to, to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, does this mean that once Jesus ascends to his Father, then it's okay to touch him? Okay? Well, we, we know that the other ladies already touched him, right? That morning? So, it must have been okay for them to bow down and hold his feet. That happened before this. You, you see what I'm saying? So, so the idea that... Well, that we understand he can't be touched by any human until he first ascends to the Father. Well, he's already been touched by the other three ladies that morning. So that, that, doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem to be an explanation. So um, <clears throat> later in the resurrection accounts, Jesus encourages his disciples to touch him. We're going to see that at the end of the evening. He's going to say, touch me, handle me. So... Did he ascend and return, and now it's okay to touch him? Does that mean Jesus ascends twice? As soon as he's done speaking with Mary, and then 40 days later? Is that what this means? I've heard no single interpretation which stands head and shoulders above all others, and some popular ones read quite a bit in the text, but we all have to read some into the text to try figure this out, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I'm here not reading anything in the text. Uh, so, what I consider to be a plausible understanding is that Mary is clinging to Jesus, wanting assurance that he won't disappear again. She wants things to be like they've always been for the last three years for Jesus to continue with them as an earthly dweller and teacher, and even the Messiah. So at this moment, there's a lot she still doesn't understand. Jesus is reassuring her, Jesus is is reassuring her that, that he is not going to immediately, permanently disappear. That is, ascend in the final sense. 
which will occur 40 days from now. She, of course, does not know So it's like he's saying, you don't have to cling to me, uh, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. I'm not leaving yet. That's what he's my... 40 days from now, I am going to disappear, but I'm going to be with you for a while longer. You say, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. I'm going to remain. And I'm going to ascend 40 days from now. He, ha he doesn't say that then. So if in this interpretation, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, means the permanent transition of Jesus not being bodily present on earth has not yet taken place. He is still going to be bodily present for a period of time. And, and we know from reading the rest of the New Testament, he's going to still be there bodily for 40 more days. So, Mary can let go of him and she will, for a while, see him again. So, she can stop clinging to him and go to his brethren as he tells them, uh, go, to, go to my brethren. Um, okay. But, okay, stop cling, clinging to me, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Well, this statement might cast some doubt on my interpretation that I gave you 30 seconds ago, right? Because, because he says, don't cling to me. And now, for I haven't, I haven't yet ascended, and now he tells her to go tell the disciples that uh, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So uh, we have to grapple with that. Um, this makes it sound like there is some sense in which Jesus is ascending right now. Also, unless we don't read Jesus' present tense language to be that immediate. So, even if we don't, the next 40 days are going to be different, aren't they? He's going to be here, but it's going to be different. He is not always present with them during the next 40 days, is he? And the transition, you see, the transition has begun. The helper has not yet been given because Jesus is not yet glorified. He hasn't ascended and sat down at the right hand of God. And so the Holy Spirit that he's promised has not been poured out. Now, Jesus' message to Mary is to bring to his brethren. This message is very, very sweet. And we need to think about this in detail. Say to them, and the them is, let's back up right here, go to, this is the first thing this week, go to my brethren, right? That's the first thing that is sweet. Jesus refers to his disciples as my brethren, my brothers and sisters. That's 
a familial relationship, isn't it? And the author of Hebrews takes off on that and says that he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Isn't that nice? Isn't that wonderful? Go and tell my brothers and sisters. He, he's saying, we are family. We, we are connected. They are his brothers and sisters. That's how, he, that's how he talks to them. It's not my disciples, my servants. It's my brethren. That's familial relationship. And uh, so... Uh, <clears throat> Okay. The okay. He also wants his disciples and us to know I'm ascending to my father and your father. He makes a point to say that. I want my brethren to know that I'm ascending I'm ascending to their father. I'm ascending to my father and I'm ascending to your Father. Wow, Jesus' Father is my Father. Really? <laughs> That's the family that I'm a part of? I'm a part of Jesus' family like he's, a part, he's part of the Father? My Father and your Father. We too are sons of God. Now, of course, Jesus is God's Isaac, correct? Meaning monogenes, one and only. So we're not, we're not a son to the father like Isaac was a son to Abraham, the one and only son, all right? And, 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 and Isaac, some of you don't know the reference, the, the term one and only son that's used in the Gospel of John in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3, that term shows up in Hebrews regarding Isaac. Abraham had two sons, but he had one unique son, the son of the promise. And that's, that's the term that's used in, in, in John. So that's my point. It's true Jesus is a unique one and only son of God. But in another sense, we are God's sons, and He is our Father, and Jesus wants His brethren to know that. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father. So, you, you can get comfort out of that in times of distress by just thinking about that, the relationship you are. Um, <clears throat> but, like John 1.12 says, we have the right or the authority to be called the children of God. John 1.12 and 1.13. Jesus has given us that right. Jesus wants his brothers and sisters to know that because of his death, resurrection, and exaltation, we come to share in his sonship with the Father. Okay. Now, how many times in the Old Testament was Yahweh referred to as the father of the old covenant people of God? 
Well, yeah, but not very many. The, the title Father for, for God in the Old Testament is very, very infrequent. And that's the point I'm making. When we get to the New Covenant, it becomes the predominant term. It's no longer praying to the Lord. It's no longer praying to Yahweh. It's praying to the Father. See, that's, that's the difference. The, the familial relationship, the closeness, is at a whole new level. And the, the, the titles are changed, especially this title, Father. And so when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says what? Pray to our Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say pray to the Lord who is in heaven. He says pray to, you pray our Father in heaven. And so this text goes right along with that, doesn't it? I'm ascending to your Father. He instructed us to pray to the Father. And all of that is reflecting the perfection and the completeness of, the, of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. It brings the people of God into a whole new closeness in their relationship with God. Right. So, um, now, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Now, he has more to say, though. <laughs> He's not done. My brethren... Tell them, my father and your father is not done yet. Third, and to my God and your God. Okay. That's the third very sweet expression. And these are words of the covenant. That's what this is. This is covenant language. My God, your God. And it is the great promise. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that's a great promise that runs all the way through the Old Testament and it finds its fulfillment in the New Covenant. Okay, No more Mosaic Covenant. No more Abrahamic Covenant. Those are shut down. Everything is fulfilled in the Abrahamic, in the New Covenant. Okay. And so, Jesus has inaugurated the New Covenant by the blood of the New Covenant, and believers are sprinkled with that blood. Okay. And so, what he is telling them is, is that Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, seals this covenant forever. He wants us to have that assurance. Tell them, Jesus says, I'm ascending to my God and to your God. Okay? And for God to be your God, that, that brings everything in. All right? For God to be your God means he is going to do for you everything that a good God should do for someone that belongs to him. <laughs> Let me express it that way. That's what it means. You know, I will be your God. God is, God is pledging himself to be God to you, which means to supply everything you need and to bring you into the glory of his kingdom. 
When God said to Israel, I will be your God, he said that, that meant what? I will deliver you out of Egypt. I will bring you through the wilderness. I will settle you in the promised land. I will do everything needful that you need. I will destroy your enemies. I will ultimately raise you from the dead. That's that covenant. And that language, that is covenantal language. Tell them, you know, I'm ascending to my God and to your God. Okay? And that I call that the big promise. That's, that's what I call that. That is the big promise. And Jesus is the one who who makes that unbreakable relationship real uh, by his blood, uh, the blood of the new covenant. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's the reminder of it, right? Do this in remembrance of me. This, this is the blood of the new covenant. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are reminded every time we do the Lord's Supper that God is our God, um, through the blood of this covenant, or we should be. So, um, it's, it's sad that this language isn't recognized uh, by Christians, the covenantal dimension of language like this, your God. And, and the reason it's not is because dispensationalism made a mistake, okay? And, 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 and so they... And, they, they just said, you know, being in the covenant, that's for Israel. That has something to do with ethnic Israel. And it's so sad. It's very sad. Uh, and, uh, but, well, fortunately, by God's grace, uh, some of us have come to understand that. And, and we've been blessed with teachers that have helped us see the, the rich covenant language that, that all of salvation is based on. And, um, that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, my God and your, your God. So, uh, those, those three things are, are just very rich. Um, so, Mary Magdalene uh, follows the instructions we know, and she came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, we know from Luke what happened when she did that. They didn't believe her. John doesn't give us that detail, but Luke, Luke gives us that detail. She reported all this, and initially on the first report, they, they didn't believe her. So, any, any thoughts or questions on, on this wonderful interaction here between Jesus and, and Mary? The fact that he would... You know, the fact that he appeared, he made it a point to appear to Mary Magdalene, okay? She gets to see him personally, and, and he did that even before he appeared to Peter. You got one? I said, I wonder why. I don't know why. <laughs> I think the Lord was testing them and growing them in ways they wouldn't have otherwise. But Oh. Um, so... I've dwelled on this phrase uh, or this interaction where Mary grabs Jesus. Oh, yeah. And to me, um, it's important because it goes to, this happens in John. Yeah. And 
Thomas's experience is also recorded in John. Yes. And the idea is, um, Mary, I'm looking for those that believe that have not seen and touched me um, as part of it. Oh. And yeah. I don't know that every one of the 500 would ever touched right. Jesus, but right. they saw him and, and still believed. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Jesus is calling them to believe based on the scripture and based on faith and that you don't have to touch me to believe. Oh, I like that. And yeah. And Mary was the uh, a first-hand yeah. encounter and so he wants everyone to know that Mary tried to grab a hold of him. Yeah. And the promises of the covenant are to everyone that could not do what Mary did. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Did you have something Thelma? No. Anybody else? On this interaction, when you when you need some sweetness, just think about my brethren, my father, your father, my God, your God, and and you know I I, I that helped me a little bit today in a, in a, for a few moments uh, when yeah so. Okay, uh, let's move on. Jesus' interaction now with Cleopas and another disciple on the, on the road to Emmaus. We'll go to Luke 24. And how blessed we are to have four Gospels and we can bounce back and forth and do all of that. Uh, so Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day, so it's still Sunday, I, I guess this is like early afternoon by the time all this other stuff took place and, and, and they headed off. They're leaving Jerusalem now and they're heading to Emmaus uh, the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from uh, Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was that while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Have you seen that famous painting? Where it's a back view and it shows the road and it shows that that's really a cool, cool painting. I'm not that big into paintings, but and I'm not a fond of paintings of Jesus, but that, so that painting is his back. So. They're on the road and they're and they're traveling and Jesus walks up there and 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 meets them. Okay, so we went near with went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And I, I'm of the I lean toward the fact that this this was a supernatural restraint. You know, I mean, we can't be completely dogmatic about it. But the, they get unconstrained later, and they immediately recognize him. So I, I think Jesus has, Jesus is intending maybe to do like you, that they should believe in him without seeing. You see, you, you just triggered that thought, right? Before he's going to allow them to see him, he's going to he's going to show them all this scripture. I think I even said it in the notes. But he's going to show them all the scripture first. You think? I, 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 it seems that's what's going on. Let, let's, we'll, we'll go through it. So their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. 
And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk along and are sad? <laughs> you can just see them there, you know. You know, they're, they're pretty sad. They're, they're grieved and they're walking along. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, and, and Cleopas can hardly believe this, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And you have not known the things which happened there in these days? Now this means visitor. Some of your translations probably have. Are you the only visitor in, in Jerusalem? And so why were there so a lot of visitors in Jerusalem at this time? Passover. Passover, right. You see, so the city was filled up with visitors. And what's interesting about his comment is, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem and have not known these things which happened there in these days? This is two days after Christ's death. So a large percentage of the population in Jerusalem must have known of his execution. Because look what he says. Cleopas is surprised that he's come across somebody that's been in Jerusalem and doesn't realize that this man, Jesus, had been executed. And that the whole city was sad and upset about it. Right. Such that someone would question him. Yeah. Are you sad? Why do you want it sad? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, the population knew uh, Jesus, you know, was known. I mean, well, he had ministered there in the temple for like four days, right in the middle of the path, you know, right, right in the middle of Passover week, he ministered in the temple there for, you know, for three or four days. So it was well known that that's the point that we can we can confidently get from Cleopas's uh, question. Okay. And you have not known the things which happened there in these days. And Jesus said to them, what things? <laughs> so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So the, 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 the large populace, we've said that, they didn't necessarily believe he was a messiah, but they believed he was a prophet, at least. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. So there's the definition of the things which have happened. So the people also knew that it was their leaders that had Jesus crucified. <laughs> okay. So, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So their messianic hopes have been dashed. That's what they mean by that. They thought he was, he, they thought he was the Messiah. They were hoping that he was the Messiah and that he would redeem Israel. Besides all this, 
Today is the third day since these things have happened. Now, I need to get into my notes here for a moment uh, and see that I'm not missing something. Okay, yeah. Yeah, verse 20. Okay, the messianic hopes we had hoped that they once entertained are now shattered. So at this point, it makes you want to scream. <laughs> but Jesus on the road with them did not scream. <laughs> what is their awareness regarding this? Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. You know, did they expect something to happen on the third day after Jesus' death? You know, I, I don't know. But they bring this up. It's, there's, the fact that it's now the third day is bumming them out even more. <laughs> What's that? Well, they put guards there, so it wouldn't be there wouldn't be a hoax. So I'm, I, I read commentaries and and then, and then they go on. You know, the the women astonished us. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they when they did not find his body, and they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Well, we've been through all that. But again, the angels weren't there. So it's like, I was talking to James before the class started, why the Lord chose to reveal himself to the ladies first. You know, the four ladies go out there. Mary Magdalene blasts, runs back to the city. The three ladies see the angels. The three ladies start back to the city and Jesus appears to them. Meanwhile, Peter and John are coming out of the city to go to the tomb. And when they get there, there's no angel and there's no Jesus. The angels, neither Jesus did not, nor Jesus hung around for waiting for Peter and John to show up. And then later, Jesus shows up to Mary Magdalene. And then finally, it's later that Jesus appears to Peter. I, I don't have an explanation for that. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like the first, well, he appeared to Peter somewhere in the afternoon, I think after the report that the ladies brought. But, but anyways, it's just, you know, it's just a thing and just to think about. Maybe he, they, uh, he didn't teach you that they would not believe that having people would not believe 
I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, we find apologetic value in it because women were not considered credible witnesses, and yet the gospel uses women as the first witnesses. So that means the gospel's not fake. You know, if someone was writing a fake novel, they wouldn't have the women being the first witnesses. So, uh, okay, well, let, let's continue here a little bit with these guys. I, I sidetracked myself. I, um, yeah, so Cleopas and the other disciple, it's the third day and these women astounded us um, but, uh, and said that the angels told him that she was alive. Verse 24, and they found, a t they found the tomb empty. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? and to enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they, they still haven't recognized him, but yet he reproves them, and he says they are foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So... The first thing I want to say here is he reproves their unbelief. These are strong terms. Foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe. Jesus nor any portion of the Word of God ever gives a drop of sympathy regarding unbelief. You won't find it. Here's the same thing. There's not a drop of sympathy regarding unbelief. He just doesn't. And not a drop of sympathy, as if it is reasonable to think that believing is difficult, things aren't clear, and people have good reasons for doubting. There's never a drop of that in the Gospels and in Jesus' teaching. No. There's no excuse for unbelief. And I'm not saying that, that we don't, maybe sometimes, often, we struggle with doubt. We might. And we have, and we do. And we ought, you know, and we ought not to suppress it and act as if it isn't there. But I'm saying the Lord always taught that the, un, taught the unreasonableness of unbelief. And that the unreasonableness and the weakness is on our part. Oh, what foolish ones. Oh, what slow of heart. The explanation for unbelief is our foolishness and our slowness of heart. Not that the evidence isn't clear enough. Or that something's missing. Or that God is hard to find. Nothing in, and nothing in Scripture coddles unbelief. And, and we see that on display right, right here. Many people think that in the day of judgment, the Lord will agree with them and all their reasons for not believing in Him. 
Well, they are in for a shock. They're in for a, a gigantic shock. Yeah. So I'm not one to be without reproof in my life. And what I've read this passage many times, and I always stop at Jesus calling them out. And I've had the question, when Jesus calls them out, foolish ones, slow of heart, how do they not stop and stare at him intently? I mean, when I'm being reproved, the one speaking truth to oh, my mind yeah. is creating this direct connection yeah. of my mind to the mind of God that is, you know, uh, it's like getting hit in the face with a bucket of cold water. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand how they're not stopping and staring at him and looking at who this person is that could say that to them. It, it confuses me. Because when someone's done that, it's yeah. been so sobering Yeah, for someone to say that. And the fact that Jesus could say this to them, and it wasn't until later they really sobered up. <laughs> well, you know, you know uh, Brian... That might be adding to leaning the interpretation about they were restrained. You know, you've just given some credence to the fact that they were supernaturally restrained. Because how could they do that, is what you're saying, without beginning to recognize who he is? So I, I don't know. I had, not, I had not ever thought about it until you just said that, but... Yeah, they 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 listen to him, you know. They're they're, well, you know. I mean, they respect the scriptures, you know. And he's beginning to explain the scripture, but he starts out with this reproof. So, I don't know. Um, okay, so what is he? Okay. So the question: Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter his glory? Well, the answer is. Yes, is the answer to the question. But they weren't answering the question that way. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them all the things in the Scripture concerning himself. Beginning with Moses means the Pentateuch, the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible. Um, so there's something else I want to say here before the revealing. Um, yeah, yeah. So they, I don't know what order to say things in. They they want him to continue. So and as they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, "Abide with us." for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. This is a really strong word. Um, and it's translated, they, I mean, they really, really constrained him, urged him, compelled him. It's a strong word. They wanted him to stay with them, which I think is really neat, you know. They start out thinking, are you the only idiot, you know, in, in Jerusalem that don't, don't you read your newspaper or turn on the news? I mean, where you been? You've been living in a cave or something? <laughs> You know, the, and now they've gone all the way to the point where it's like, 
boy, we want, we want to spend more time with this Jew. You know, we want to spend time with this guy so, so they, they constrain him to stay with us. And so the day is far spent. And so he went in and stayed with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at table with them that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him <clears throat> and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? That's just a wonderful statement. Now you can tell that these guys were believers, how they respond to the word of God. Absolutely. You know, I mean, these guys were believers in the Jewish sense, in the true sense, as, as, as believing Israelites among the remnant. And, and, and Jesus starts explaining the scriptures to them, and they're like thrilled. And, and they realize, realize that it's him. Now, backing up here on one thing, so knowing the resurrection from the scriptures, it seems kind of difficult the, the resurrection in general, we know from the Old Testament, and the, belie the Jews believed the, in the resurrection of the righteous at the end of the age. They believed that. They believed in a resurrection. Now, they didn't necessarily believe and understand that one particular man was going to be resurrected, the Messiah. And I went back and I read this passage again, right here, verse 26. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? Now, when you read Psalm 22, that's exactly the, the pattern. The psalm starts out, and the individual in the psalm goes through all these horrific sufferings, and then the psalm transitions to glory and exaltation. But it isn't completely clear that he died and rose from the dead. He suffered all these horrible things, and then he goes to glory. Isaiah 53 is sort of like that, because he suffers all these things, but it does mention a grave, doesn't it? In Isaiah 53? Yeah. His grave is with the... Yeah, he, he, but his grave was with... The rich man, but... Yeah. Criminals in his death, the rich man is... Yeah. Yeah, so that gets pretty close. Be, you know, let's look at that. Because Isaiah 53 then also ends with glory. It starts with suffering, ends with glory. Psalm 22 starts with suffering, ends with glory. Verse 9. Y yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So in Psalm 53, he dies, and they made his grave with the wicked, right? but with the rich at his death. Because, okay. 
Well, you know, you, you, would, you could infer the resurrection. Yet, it, okay, so, he shall see the labor of his soul, he shall be satisfied. Therefore, he hears all the exaltation. You could infer the resurrection from that, right? He gets a reward afterwards. He gets, he gets this great reward, right? He gets this great reward. Therefore, I will divide a portion with the, with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. He, so, us to make that leap easily, you know, you can't experience this reward unless you're raised from the dead. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You see, honestly, at times it's like Jesus seems unreasonable. <laughs> That's my point that I'm getting to. Sometimes I think, Jesus, you seem unreasonable that we should have been able to get it from this. Now, once it's happened, we get it. But he said they should have been able to get it. And you know what else it reminds me of? Is when Abraham's faith grew strong that God promised him from your seed it'll be like the stars of heaven. And when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham still believed that he would keep the promise and raise him from the dead. So maybe it's like, I, I don't know, I'm just kind of just rambling my thoughts out loud with you as a class. But Jesus said they should have been able to figure it out, but none of them did. Uh, but here in Isaiah 53, he dies. The servant here dies and goes, is in a grave, and yet he's exalted and, and, and the spoil, he divides the spoil with the great. Um, you know, Jonah, three nights in the whale. We didn't ever got Jesus. Came, yeah, come on now, Lord. How do you expect us to get that one ahead of time? Everyone knows Jonah didn't die. Right. They thought he was dead. But, 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 but. Jesus alludes to that event, that 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 three day, but there was there was a three day emphasis in Old Testament, J Jonah's Jonah's three days, and then Hosea says, "Let us return to the Lord. He has struck us down. He will heal us on the third day. He will save us." So so there's at least three, maybe there's more, there's three or four three-day significant things in the Old Testament. So, but the biggest thing they had, of course, is Jesus told them. I think on three occasions at least, Jesus explicitly told them he would rise from the dead. So they, they had that. So... Well, okay, these are two wonderful passages and it's great to, you know, dig around in them for a while and, and, and try to kind of enter, enter into it.
Uh, yo, you know what? <clears throat> I didn't get to the... Let's do the comparing notes. Uh, we still haven't gotten to Sunday evening. We should stop. It's five after. We'll stop. Anybody want to add anything to the road to Emmaus uh, thing? <clears throat> okay. The doctrine of Scripture is there. That's a secondary truth from this passage, of course, that uh, Jesus' doctrine of Scripture is right there, isn't it? Slow to believe what? They should have believed all that the prophets had spoken. So there, there's your inerrancy and worthy of belief uh, foundation. It flows from Jesus' own teaching that the Old Testament is not a fool of things you ought not to believe. <laughs> the Old Testament is full of things we ought to believe, isn't it? And that was Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament. So you can't, you can't jettison the Old Testament without incriminating Jesus. Right? You incriminate the Old Testament, you incriminate Jesus. Jesus was wrong. Jesus had a wrong view. And I don't doubt that Protestant liberals think that way. They're, they're, they're more than willing to say that, no, yeah, Jesus didn't get it all right. Well, he did get it all right. And he rose from the dead to prove it. <laughs> Amen. Anybody else? I ask you to talk and then I start blabbing. Okay. All right, Brian, lead us in prayer as, as we're done. Hello. Yeah. Let's bow. Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and our Father, Lord, we bow before you, and we ask as our Savior before us, Lord, that we would revere you as holy, as mm -hmm. set apart from us. Indeed, Lord, you and your triune being thought of this plan, and we chose to reveal yourself in this way, and we glorify you for that, Lord. We glorify you, Lord, because it is a plan that no human mind could ever think of. Lord, and for all of our being made in your image, you are so much higher than us. Your ways are above us, Lord. Your thoughts are so much higher than ours. Lord, we are debased in our corruption of our flesh, and we thank you that you have redeemed us out of that, and you have allowed us to think your thoughts after you. Mm. I ask, Lord, that we would think more of your thoughts after you, that we would humble ourselves daily under the tutelage of your word that we might understand, even as Jesus expected his early hearers to understand what the scripture was talking about. And indeed, we have a full revelation from you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can see, Lord, the start and the beginning and the end. And we do know our end. So, Lord, as we go through the week mm. and we wonder about our end and we wonder about our future, mm. that we would be in hope, Lord, mm -hmm. that whether we are going through the toughest of times, Lord, mm. or whether we are needing the Lord to stand uh, on your word and your faith alone and, that, and your gift alone, that we would do it all by the grace and the mercy that you provide to us through your mm. Son. Lord, we ask that we would indeed search these things out of the Scripture to see whether they be so, that we would be familiar, Lord, with the prophecies of you, so that we would know that all of history is your history, 
all of history is your redemptive history. Mm. We thank you for the saints in this place. We thank you for those that have come out. We ask for traveling mercies. We ask for those saints, Lord, that could not make it and could not be here. Please be with your body. Please let them know that not only do you care for them, but you have built your church, Lord, to support them and to provide for them. We ask that you would be with us in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.